Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to be sharing with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have another guest on the show and I'm speaking to Richie Cartwright, entrepreneur and someone who has previously suffered from binge eating disorder for six years. Richie's binging began whilst he was a student at Cambridge University, although he didn't recognise this as a problem until some years later. Richie felt that he was leading a double life as he appeared confident and self-assured on the outside when internally he was feeling differently and had struggles with food and body image. Richie is the founder of Fella, an organisation that supports men in overcoming binge eating through an online community. There remains a lot of stigma around men accessing support and Richie's aim is to really break down these barriers. So Fella provides an online community where men can access cognitive behaviour therapy and get the clinically recommended support that they need. So let's get to the interview. Hi, Richie. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, hey, Harriet. It's great to be here. So, Richie, could you just start off by sort of introducing yourself and letting us know a little bit more about you? Yep. So I'm Richie Cartwright and I run Fella, which is a startup to help men who struggle with binge eating. And I guess how we do that is we mix community, so guys kind of being together in the same place, with cognitive behavioural therapy, which is the kind of frontline treatment for guys who struggle. Okay, no, brilliant. I mean, sounds fantastic and great to hear about, I think, a really sort of specialised and focused kind of support for binge eating for men. Actually, could you sort of just tell us a little bit about your sort of story? And obviously, I know you've had your own issues with binge eating. So could you sort of take us right back to like, you know, initially, perhaps when you were a little boy and tell us a little bit about your relationship with food and body image back then? Yeah, really fascinating one, because I guess I normally start the story more around 19 when I went to university, because I think that's actually when the more emotional relationship started to show. But actually, I think it's a fantastic point The more the body image side probably starts around 11, if I can kind of put the pieces back together and then really starts in earnest around 13, 14. And then they start lifting weights around that time. And then I think the social pressures that we've seen in women for a very long time are also present with teenage boys now. So actually a fa- fascinating question. I think it's probably 13 when you know, I, I lose quite a bit of weight. I, it's, I get quite a few positive social reinforcements that my new body is a good body. I have a lot of, I play a lot of sport. And so, so my weight, I guess, is very low, but I start to recognize some of these big pressures, you'd probably start to say, or yeah, pressures for the male physique, which is, both this kind of mixture of low fat, but but critically high muscle. And that probably defines a lot of teenage boys kind of gym going across their teenage years. Yeah, no, sure. No, I mean, I think you're so right. Actually, I think there's just so much more pressure and, you know, those sort of influences on sort of teenage boys and from very young. So going back again, again, a bit, Richie, as well. Sorry, it's a therapist coming out to me here. But sort of pre-11 as well, like, do you think, Were you sort of like just quite carefree in your body? You know, did you, you know, was body image ever an issue before then? Or were you just kind of quite body neutral kind of through your primary school years? 
Yeah, great question. And it's, I honestly must say, this is never something I've really thought about in detail. I've only kind of gone more the later years, so 16 onwards. So this is quite fascinating for me, I think. I'd say relatively body neutral, probably especially to what I've heard compared with, say, a lot of girls and their experience through this time. But that said, I think there's one, you start to pick up messages very early of like, what is masculinity? And so that starts to play on your mind. I think number two, I always... Like I was very sporty, but I always knew I didn't have like that kind of nice young, it's like the skinny boy aesthetic. And I was never like, I, I knew I was never like the most attractive there. And that that bugged me, but in quite subtle ways, I think in the younger years. And then I guess the third thing was probably more the family influences. And so for my dad, the fat level and therefore how good you were at kind of running based sports was always really critical. And I think, you know, maybe he has some of his own things that he hasn't really addressed, but that was definitely a big influence, I think, on my mentality through those years as well. Mm, no, sure. So, and it's so interesting, isn't it? Just from how young, I think, how we can, you know, we look around, we can kind of pair, compare ourselves to others. And like you're sort of almost saying, like you felt perhaps you hadn't got that kind of, I don't know, that kind of skinny like, boy sort of physique. You noticed perhaps you were a little bit different from others or, you know, or different enough that you kind of, that you didn't sit comfortably or you felt you were kind of missing something maybe? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd say I was probably quite a calm relationship through those years. I think it probably became less calm or a bigger deal actually later on, say from 13 onwards. But I would say you start to see some of those signs, which is pretty fascinating because you're really innocent in many ways then. But I think as a as an eight-year-old, you know a lot about the world in your head, even if you don't maybe fully understand it yet. And so the pressures are still there. Yeah, no, sure, no, sure. And interesting, isn't it? Because like you say, Pat, Sam, with your dad as well, maybe like, is your dad kind of quite into sport himself or was he you know, whether was, there were some messages from him were there maybe to be very athletic or to, you know, hold spot your on, yeah. yeah, go on. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say absolutely spot on. It was very much like sport was a the core thing, probably that and academic success. But I played, me and my sister, we just played sport. That's what we did. That's what we're known for. We just did that all the time. And therefore, I think what's really interesting to look back on it, it was always framed as like a athletic performance, like look at the best performance at your age and above ages, look at their you know, body type. I'm, I'm talking about running based sports as well. So this was always football, like soccer, and it was always hockey. It was always the sports that were like good to be, you know, thin and nimble. And interesting that my dad's kind of body type is definitely that, like a kind of a runner. My mum's side of the family are more kind of farmers, more endomorphs. And so I think, interestingly, me and my sister were probably this kind of interesting mix of genes where we had these pressure to be quite nimble athletes in that sense. Yet maybe some of our genetics meant that our genetic set point of fat was probably a little bit higher. And so there was always this thing framed as athletic performance. But actually, I think looking into it, it probably is more of a value-based thing. Like, you know, being fat is bad and and being thin is virtuous almost. Mm, sure. Yeah, no, sure. And it, it's so tricky, isn't it? Because I think as well, you know, I'm a parent myself and I just think huge compassion to parents. because it Absolutely. <laughs> the 
best we can. Absolutely, but, um, absolutely. Yeah, but it, I suppose as well, it sounds like for you as well, from quite young, you know, as well, I guess just quite kind of high achieving family and just kind of, I guess, in a way, probably, I would imagine, Richie, from very young, whatever you set your mind to, you probably kind of wanted to excel and do your best and to really achieve which I guess, you know, really positive things, but I guess as well, when that get, can get channeled into kind of body image and aesthetic things as well, that can be quite a pressure and potentially a bit dangerous if it's taken to an extreme. Yeah, yeah. And I think, as you said, the the parenting thing that people do, and I haven't quite got to that stage yet, seems incredibly difficult. Like I have like unbelievable, I guess, empathy and I'm incredibly privileged to have had such like a healthy upbringing, really. So so anything I say here is definitely not a criticism. I think it's highlighting some of the complexities of like raising a kid and all the subtle messages you pick up and how you can really not really predict almost how they pick that up. And I guess also it's a it's a thing to say how normal that is, that actually, and I think sadly, you know, teenage girls and women have been aware of this for several decades if not longer now but as a group of guys as a society of men we're only just starting to catch up actually how deep that runs for us we're only just starting to to admit it now and so i think maybe one of the wider lessons would be that there's not like bad parenting here or anything like that it's just incredibly common and maybe as as a group of guys we should start to kind of talk about it more and recognize it more Mm, yeah no I think I think so true and I think I think just such a fine line to walk isn't it because I think there's so many kind of scaremongering kind of you know news stories about obesity and then I think as a parent you feel you know terrified that your child's gonna become overweight or something and unhealthy then you're also terrified of eating disorders and it's very challenging I think to just kind of walk that middle healthy line well, and, and as you mentioned, you want your kid to be happy, it seems, fundamentally, that seems like the parent's kind of biggest goal, really. And a core part of that is self-actualization and making sure they feel fulfilled in their every day. And a core part of that is you know, succeeding at school and stuff like that. And so it would be, I think, in my head, such a shame if we criticized parents for wanting that and we criticize structures which try to encourage that. I think it's also really important to recognize how flawed some of our kind of motivational methodologies have been and actually how kind of ineffective some of them may be. So you can still absolutely encourage and look for the highest achievement you could imagine. Yeah, at the same time, include compassion as a core kind of strategy as part of that. And they're not conflicting as I think they may have been presented in many times in the past. Yeah, no, I I think you're so right, isn't it? Because I think in a way, the core thing, I think, isn't it, is kind of helping the child develop healthy self-esteem alongside maybe the things they're achieving. So your worth is not just kind of down to achieving X, Y and Z. You've kind of got that core intrinsic worth and you can achieve these other things as well. But you are good enough despite achieving these other things. That's the challenge, I think. So do you want to say a bit more like you're saying kind of it was like in your teenage years where, you know, things started to you became much more kind of body conscious. Do you want to sort of say a bit more about that? Maybe what kind of triggered that and, you know, the sort of journey? Yeah, I don't think I had an abnormal journey here. I think this is actually incredibly common of a lot of like mates and friends and, and what I see in wider society as well. So I, basically, I think I, we started going to the gym to lift weights as 14-year-old guys. And that was relatively early, but that was pretty common. A lot of my mates 
played rugby and so they kind of started it and I joined in because that was that was what you did really and then you that's how you thought you became a man and I think then you start to see how the influences on muscularity are really important so to be big is good and to be small and skinny is bad and then you have a competing one somewhat which is like to be fat is bad and to be thin or slim is good and so I think you have this quite an interesting and this is maybe where some of the body image stuff kind of differs a little bit to women and girls in that you have these kind of competing pressures and in some way guys have it way easier and that they have way less pressure on their body and in some ways there are some kind of more complex kind of competing mechanisms and so yeah I think that I just started to gym every day and I was already doing sports. So it almost felt kind of complimentary, but I think there were definitely, it really wasn't about the improved performance. A lot of the time it was about kind of aesthetics or it started to become more so from 14, 15, 16. And then I think really my diet became a big thing from around 16 onwards, I think. And I started to control my food a little bit more. And again, it was all perceived as very healthy things. You know, I was wanting to quote unquote eat clean and I wanted to, you know, I was very much into bodybuilding methodologies and, you know, I'd be cutting or I'd be bulking and I'd be doing all these things. And it all seems completely detached from any, what would, you know, if you told me the phrase eating disorder back then, I'd be like, what are you on about? That's nothing to do with what I'm doing here. But then I think that's a realization on kind of bodybuilding culture and a lot of the disordered habits around that. And so I think that just kind of, gradually escalated but nothing too serious and then I think the big change really was when I went to university different pressures and also different food environments and then that really started to escalate at a different level at that point. Mm-hmm. Sure okay so and I guess it, it's like for many people isn't it I think it kind of like you're sort of saying in a way if someone had come up to you and said the word eating disorder then you would have just been completely sort of flummoxed and like no way this is you know not this is disordered eating at all and it often I guess starts off in quite really well intentioned and actually probably not Mm. disordered did you find as well like was it quite maybe addictive is too strong a word but I'm just wondering like when you kind of went to the gym and you kind of got more results and you were kind of leaner whatever more muscly did you get a lot of external validation for that yeah yeah Definitely, of course. And that's a really powerful reinforcing loop. And I think the most powerful part of that is it becomes your identity. Mm. So you are the person who is X. And therefore, why that is important is if you were to no longer be X, it's not like you're just losing X and the advantages that would be. You're actually losing yourself. Mm. You're losing your identity. And I think if I've reflected back, that's maybe the critical point like when it embeds itself into your identity that's maybe when some of this intense intense loss aversion can play into these kind of distorted thoughts mm-hmm. yeah no sure because I, I guess there's just a lot to lose isn't there there's so much invested in maintaining all of this so for you it was when you went to university that you know the, 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 obviously any like going to uni it's like a great experience but it also you know any transition it does bring stress doesn't it kind of good and bad and um, the change in food environment so was that kind of a bit of a tipping point where you felt there was a bit of a change for you? It's interesting because none of this at all was apparent at the time and I really want to emphasize this you know, if I was speaking now to my 19-year-old self, my 19-year-old self would be thoroughly confused 
by the words I'm saying. And so looking back, it's maybe crystal clear that at the time, I didn't think I had emotions as a guy. And I proudly said that. I said, no, 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 emotions, I don't do that. That's not my thing. I thought, you know, everything was very much under my control. And so if I needed to do something, it was just about knuckling down. You don't need to get help. No, of course you don't. You just, this is something to tackle. And so, you know, procrastination, just something to tackle. Sleep problems, just something to tackle yourself. Like Google on the internet, read an article, start a routine, build a habit. <laughs> and the same, exactly the same methodology for food. Ah, I'm struggling with this. Right, let's get on keto. Let's get on low sugar. Let's get on vegan. Let's get on whatever thing, because obviously it's just at the dietary level. I never once considered it could be anything kind of more fundamental than that could, that could need kind of bigger help. And so I'd say, yeah, like none of this is apparent at the time. It kind of got progressively weirder and weirder, but because it was so gradual, I kind of didn't kind of reflect. It was only until it's only my 24th birthday. And that was the first time I ever researched it because it got weirder. It got worse during that time because there was much heightened stress. I thought my first company had failed, but that's five years after this starting of university. And only at that point did I do the one Google, which brought up exactly what I'd been struggling with for years. I think that five-year period of never once typing those words into Google is a really, really fascinating time. Mm, sure. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because like you're saying, actually, you thought the problem was probably just like a kind of like, you know, you need to just find the right diet, the right meal plan or whatever to fix it you would address it in a very sort of practical way and you hadn't even considered it would be a, maybe an emotional problem or let alone maybe well, I, exactly well I didn't have emotions Harriet mm. I said that you know I proudly yeah. said that yeah and that's the fascinating thing looking back because obviously you start to when you do realize you have emotions you start to see actually how they affect your behavior and it's so funny that I never in the past asked oh why am I doing this I can't explain this with kind of rational reasoning. Mm. I, well, it must be my emotions. But if you're so, if you've been brought up in such a, you know, an environment where guys don't have emotions, to have emotions is weak, to be rational is good, then of course you can't admit that. Mm, sure. And it's so fascinating, isn't it? Because I think if you genuinely feel you don't have emotions, in a way, when people, other people are talking about emotions, it's almost like a different language isn't it or an alien landscape in a way you're just kind of you're just very detached from that aren't you you're it's other yeah and do you think as well like looking back because maybe at the time you would even been aware of this but you know this kind of I don't have emotions belief or whatever did that impact your relationships and you know like friendships through uni I'm absolutely sure it did yeah I think maybe the other parts of masculinity that are more defining there so maybe with relationships it's as a bloke you you think you need to be resilient resilience means independence independence means being an island got it right i can't rely on anyone therefore you know being in a relationship is kind of being a wuss or being a something like that there were definitely thoughts that i never put my finger on at the time but i'm sure were big drivers and are still drivers i want to clarify this it's not like i've just because i've become more aware they're still not they're still kind of driving some thought processes and some behaviors. So definitely more of the, I don't want to rely on anyone. I must be independent, I think is, yeah, it's fundamental. Yeah, it dictates how you interact. 
definitely yeah no sure and I think it's just so helpful you saying all of this out loud Richie so I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening that will just really identify with this but perhaps haven't been able to just really appreciate perhaps what you know their relationship to their emotions or Mm. you know even thought about it in this way before it's a really interesting point Harriet as well because I've thought a lot about what would resonate with 19 year old 20 year old Richie or 16 year old or 13 year old Richie and a lot of the content out there wouldn't and you maybe I think it would be below me or for other people or not for me and this is why I've had such a tussle with the kind of self-compassion movement because it in many ways kind of conflicts with some or seem to conflict with some of my deeper values and so it's almost like well you either self-compassionate or you're successful it's cool but you get to choose and I think it's especially as a bloke, if you ever, if you ever to type in self-compassion into Instagram, you see lovely palette colors, you see fantastic women coaches, you see those like very engaging content, but all for women. And there's nothing out there. They, you know, you don't have those grays, those silvers, those blues or whatever that you'd see in that kind of very muscular content. And mm. it's really interesting on that. And I think a lot of guys have also you just, I guess you glance over it. You're like, oh, okay, more content for women. Yeah, self-compassion's a woman thing. Yeah, got it, okay. And this is maybe why I've started to try to think of it and try to talk about it as like, it's actually the most effective thing for whatever your goal could be, is to be in this calm mind state where you are motivated by upside and not motivated by the guilt of downside and that actually you're realistic and accepting of your current self and that you can move forward practically and not kind of beat yourself up. And to start with the framing as it is like, this is just practical. This is just effective. This is, this is not like fluffy hippie stuff. This is like mm. fundamentally effective. I think it's like a really important part I've tried to kind of really hammer home. Mm, no, sure. So helpful. And I think obviously there's a lot of research now, isn't there, just to show how helpful self-compassion is with so many sort of factors relating to mental health. But I think I think it's just fascinating, actually, just hearing you talking about it and just, you know, thinking about what's relatable to particularly perhaps younger people and maybe younger men as well. But it sounds like as well, like just this kind of conflict in values almost, like in a way like you're saying, like 19-year-old Richie or whatever might not have kind of self-compassion and all of that probably would have then seemed all a bit woolly and woo-woo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it's fantastic, you know, I think, again, that you're speaking about this and almost being able to show in a way that you kind of can marry the different values together and, you know, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater or just be one or the other. Yeah. So through university, Richie, as well, like, although at the time you didn't really relate to it as a disordered eating eating disorder whatever were you sort of binging quite regularly or or was it just something that just happened now and then or you know what was it like kind of your relationship with food yeah it was a core part of my life very hidden and quite hidden from myself but it was just so habitual that every probably every couple of days I'd have a period where I'd lose control and I'd eat I don't know anywhere from a thousand to two and a half thousand calories or something but it didn't feel it felt just like oh one of those things you know I do that and it because I wasn't I didn't kind of feel depressed I was fortunately from the outside you know still cracking along and and from the inside still felt happy and sociable and confident and whatever 
that it, that's why it didn't feel kind of related to my mental state at all. It was like just this behavior completely separate, but yeah, like consistently would, but never, ever, ever in front of people. So other people would see me finishing plates of food. They would see me, you know, I, I'd be known for like finishing leftovers if anyone ever leftovers, but I was comfortable doing that in public. Mm. And, and yeah. I guess the interesting part about the binging is that I never felt uncomfortable in, it's never like I actively tried to hide it. It's just that I happened to never, ever, ever have done it in front of anyone else. I think that's a really remarkable thing that it never felt like something I was trying to hide. And yet I really did hide it. Mm, sure. And it sounds like as well, doesn't it, that perhaps particularly through uni, in a way you were kind of functioning, like you said, in a way, there's lots of very sort of good aspects to your life and you felt sort of quite happy in lots of ways. And it was almost, it's almost like you hadn't reached that kind of tipping point, maybe had you where it was it was really starting to sort of devastate your life or have a really huge impact. You were still kind of getting along day to day, but it was obviously there as a kind of like, you know, it wasn't great, but it was a you you were still kind of functioning and living. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And it was only around my 24th birthday when deeper stresses started to play in, when it kind of really changed. I, I say it, it went from the dark into the light. And I mean that figuratively and literally. And the literally in the sense that it only ever happened at night before. And now it was happening kind of during the middle of the day. And the extremity was higher. And it definitely triggered some thought in my mind that went, ah, like this is not normal now. Mm, sure. So that was a period, was it, where like suddenly, like, you know, you had your own company and it, it wasn't doing as well as you had hoped. And so like kind of multiple stresses and that kind of just sent the binging to, to kind of more extreme level, did it? Where you kind of really realised actually this is something that is really out of control. And, you know, I know something's not right here. Yeah, yes, basically. And I'd, I'd say it's, it was much, much stronger in my head than this company isn't working. It was, this is failing. I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. Okay, if I'm a failure, then what am I going to do with my life now? I've messed up this path. Like, what is my life kind of thing? So there were much, much you know, deeper thoughts. And then from the body image angle, just so you're aware, I think, I think this is probably important context. During the summer before, so a few months before, I was gymming 12 times a week to two gym classes a day six days a week consistently and thinking that was a very, very healthy behavior. And obviously I looked great. <laughs> it looked quite skinny, but looked, looked great. was in great shape. Thought of it as a very, very positive habit, but obviously looking back, you're like, ah, <laughs> why was I going 12 times a, a week? Mm, sure. Yeah. Okay. So, so it sounds like in a way that was a very dark time for you in lots of ways, was it? And, you know, I guess it sounds like there must've been you'd had like really high expectations on yourself maybe with this company and when it wasn't working out you felt incredibly low and as though like you're saying that you felt as though you were personally a failure yeah I I wouldn't say it was definitely like probably one of the lowest periods of my life unfortunately I don't think it was I think many people go through much worse and again from the outside you'd really have no idea but it definitely was the time when my very resistant, maybe hyper-masculine brain started to go, ah, like something weird's going on. I wonder whether it's worth searching about this. And an interesting context as well. So I, I hit 
I think I found the binge eating page on the NHS on the 7th of October, maybe the 8th, 2018. Yeah, I think that's right. I kind of remember that time pretty well. And soon after, I was like, ah, that's, you know, the first thing is when you hit the page and you're like, shit, like that is me. Like, yes, that's me. That's me. That's also me. That sign is me. Okay, wow. Like I didn't, I've never told you this. How do you know this about me? I thought it was just my own kind of personal quirk. And then I mentioned this to one of my best mates, my housemate. And this is not a, like a negative comment on him at all. And I think it just displays the kind of lack of awareness we all have as guys growing up. But it was just, I, you know, I said, you know, there's this thing and I think I may, you know, I think I may have it. It went, nah, mate, come on. You know, I, you know, I've, I've seen you, I've seen what you eat. Like we all eat a lot, you know, we're gymming you, you've got, good calorie intake it's all about the macros all the all the kind of language i was very used to and what's really interesting is i think if we were both women we well we wouldn't even be having that conversation because we would have realized five years ago yeah and so these kind of signs even when they're really quite obvious and you kind of start to bring it up that mm. for most guys still is just like completely an other yeah Sure. Yeah. No, it's so tough, isn't it? Because I guess in a way, you know, it takes a lot of courage, doesn't it, to kind of be a bit more vulnerable and like speak openly to someone about it. But yeah, like again, I, I think like, I think you're, you're so right. Probably if you'd been female and speaking to a girlfriend, it would have been probably a very different response, wouldn't it? Just because of the way women are conditioned and, you know, yeah, how different it is. Whereas for men, they're still kind of just a bit of a stigma, isn't there? And just a little misunderstanding around eating disorders in men. Yeah, I'd actually say there is stigma. I think that example probably doesn't show stigma, just like <laughs> from both of us, complete naivety, <laughs> like well-meaning naivety. I think there is also stigma, but that's, I think the stigma actually around, for example, around binge eating is probably quite strong for both, is very strong, in fact, for men and women and everyone. It's not just a men thing there, I think, interestingly. And that's an, that's an interesting thing to note about binge eating compared with, say, maybe anorexia and bulimia and how it's treated differently in society. Mm, yeah, no, I, th I think really, really valid point. So, Richie, can you tell us a bit more then about kind of like, you know, obviously there's kind of awakening when you suddenly, you know, you kind of Googled about binge eating, you realise that that's what you're struggling with. So what, what was the, then your sort of journey to sort of starting to tackle it? It's a really great question. And I always hesitate with this point because, and then I got help immediately and I was very sensible about it. And obviously that's not what happened. So yeah, I waited six more months and I sat on it and I started doing vegan. I think at that point I probably tried no sugar. Like I, I, I went back to the old stuff because I was like, well, you know, it says eating disorder. It can't be about me. And what for whatever and it definitely it wasn't as bad as it was in that that kind of time but definitely super it was pretty extreme at the time and only six months later did I finally kind of tell someone and I still don't know why I did at that point but it was I was at home I'd gone home for the weekend it was mother's day overnight everyone had gone to bed but I kind of got up just after everyone had gone to bed and then I remember because I was recording everything I ate and all I was very specific on the calorie counting at that point. So I ate just over 3,000 calories of chocolate in 25 minutes whilst taking photos of the wrappers whilst monitoring it on my fitness pal. So quite distorted actually monitoring behavior as well. And then the next morning I felt absolutely awful. 
and my parents were like do you want to do anything I was like no and then they kind of persuaded me to go on a walk and for whatever reason I was just like well you know parents I do this thing and they'd never told anyone at that point so I'm not actually sure what kicked me to tell them but I was like well I, I do this thing I did it last night it's really really not rare I'm a bit confused about it that's why I'm you know that's why I'm not enjoying this morning and mm-hmm. I guess fortunately they are doctors and so they kind of clocked a bit what was going on and they directed me to CBT and that kind of started my journey really but interesting that it took me a further six months from first realizing this is an external thing they're mm, sure and I, I mean I think you're not alone there as well Richie because I think as well it's you know sometimes we can kind of have that realization can't we but off, often it's another step again to actually sort of seek help or do something about it you know I think you're, not, you're definitely not alone there so with your no, sort of CBT no. journey as well did you sort of have individual therapy or group therapy or you know what what sort of therapy did you have it was quite interesting. I guess I presented at the GP, but yeah, maybe wasn't confident enough. <laughs> and also, I think a, a young man, very healthy, fit looking, saying, oh, I have these kind of eating things. I think, and you know, I struggle, I eat too much food sometimes, maybe trying to hide it a little bit. I didn't get anything there. It was just like, well, you know, come back if you struggle more. And it felt a bit, okay. I'm maybe not going down the right route. And then fortunately I had the resources to get private therapy. So I got, I had a session every three weeks of that. And that was very helpful because I'd never talked about my emotions before really. And so that was kind of the first time you start to speak about the stuff, which is so stereotypical of a guy. And I never once appreciated that. I was like, I never once associated myself with this kind of toxic masculinity stuff, but interesting to look back. And I think with the therapy, very, really, really useful, but sadly it, it wasn't CBT as we are producing now at Fella. It wasn't the robust stuff. It wasn't a systemized. It was really, really helpful, but it was more talking therapy than CBT. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it definitely really improved. But then I dug into CBT after that and I was like, ah, you know, I really wish I'd been doing more of this. And then I kind of did a patchwork approach because I really couldn't find, yeah, I felt, yeah, I still hadn't found anyone else to kind of talk to about it or no one else that kind of seemed like me. And so it was like, well, I'll just kind of tackle this by myself. But I definitely had a deeper appreciation of the psychological side then. And then it was pretty calm. Yeah, been pretty calm since. And then I definitely want to clarify that although I'm really very distant from the binge eating behavior now, I'm still going on my own journey with the body image side, which I didn't tackle at the time. And I've only started to tackle really in the last three to six months. And then also some of the underlying thoughts or like the the draws to food as a distractor or a number or a, other things, even to a lower extent, were still there. And so those are still things I kind of wanted to distance from. Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then I think it is a it is a real journey, isn't it? Just healing your relationship with food. Because I think there, there are sort of multiple levels, really, you know, that, that there's the kind of one, you know, I guess, establishing more kind of regular eating and, and kind of getting out of the deprivation kind of mindset and deprivation in terms of what you're nourishing yourself with. But then there's all the kind of deeper stuff as well about kind of how you feel about yourself. And, and like you said, again, like the body image stuff as well. And I think, I think the body image stuff is hard because it's like you've been following a kind of certain religion almost for so many years and you've been you know practicing that every day and suddenly you can't just suddenly throw that all out overnight can you 
it has to be diluted quite slowly really no yeah exactly and i i kind of had the decision of yeah do i because i basically not allowed my body fat to increase by more than say two percent for about a decade and i hadn't realized that i'd basically been on this kind of very restrictive diet for a decade (laughs) which is funny when you say it like that but i'd never once thought of it like that i just thought it was my way of life and in some ways it was you know it was like a healthy thing and in other ways it was incredibly scared yeah scared's the right words like scared of that that change and i think then to kind of confront that head on and as the cognitive you know, cbt based approaches are like well, what happens if you do that experiment with that you know does the thought come true but to actually yeah how do you gather evidence for that well you actually have to change your body or you have to like do something, you know, if you're worried about taking off your shirt on the, in the park, you have to kind of go and do that. And these are, yeah, those are like testing things. And that's, but in some ways I've kind of had a deeper appreciation for it, but definitely, you know, facing up to it is a, a surprisingly hard challenge. Yeah. Mm, sure. Well, and it's not surprising, is it? Because I think, like you said as well, like the kind of whole identity thing, if that's kind of been your like identity for a long time, it's very, very scary letting go of that, isn't it? And, you know, understandable, a lot of fears are going to kind of come up around that. So could you just tell us a bit more as well about Fella? Like obviously say it's kind of CBT and there's a community. And so could you kind of just kind of give us a little bit more detail about like, say if somebody kind of wanted to sign up, what could their journey kind of look like if they're, you know, doing your courses or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the best way to think about it is the core thing you try and do every day is the daily exercise, which is we've taken what's traditionally say a hundred page PDF of CBT, which is the very evidence-based approach, as I'm sure your listeners will know. But we've tried to turn that into very chunkable pieces where you can do it for five minutes each day and you can get into that habit. So that's the kind of core piece. And I guess with backgrounds and software, we want to make that very engaging and we want to make that something you actually want to come back to. I think there's the kind of part that we really emphasize is the social, the peer-to-peer, the community aspect, which is And we say this is for two reasons. It's for one, self-acceptance and two, engagement. So the self-acceptance reason is as a guy or maybe as like anyone with binge eating, you don't, but as a guy, you don't know anyone else has it. You've never spoken to anyone. And this is the first time you've ever opened up. And the first time you see yourself in someone else, in the first time you see them say the same things that you would say, there's this kind of magical moment. And so this is where we say, okay, you're externalizing this traditionally internal, almost hatred or whatever, and you're self-accepting, you're accepting yourself. And then the second thing is social is much more engaging. And so we try to intertwine the peer-to-peer with, with the CBT exercises. So just as you do in a group setting, you may kind of answer questions together. How do you do that via software and via a asynchronous methodology where it's still kind of five minutes per day? And so you're kind of doing these exercises, but you're seeing insights from other fellows while you're doing this. And so that's the, that's a kind of core piece. And then additional pieces around this are, we have weekly group calls, which are synchronous hour long calls where we come together and basically chat about what we found good and what we found not so good. And then the, the final piece is these, what we call WhatsApp pods. So these are like five to eight people guided by kind of like a, a structure where they 
do a review every day of like one good thing, one bad thing. How did the day go? And that's basically to, to give people, to give the fellas an outlet for when stuff's not going well. Because I guess what we found is the instant you want to binge, you don't want to tell anyone. And the instant you have binged, you want to kind of fall off the track or you start to fall off the track. And we kind of want to make it as easy as possible to say, no, like I binge and that's kind of part of the process. And that's kind of to be expected, but yeah, guys, yeah, I'm trying to tackle this and I'm going to get back to the exercises and we're going to do this together. And that's the, yeah, the kind of crux of that part of it really. Mm, Sure. Okay. No, I love the idea actually, just how it is such a community and how, you know, it sounds like, like like you say, having those kind of bite-sized chunks and regularly sort of checking in and, you know, reflecting and kind of engaging with others. I think just, just really, really powerful, isn't it? And so kind of great at reducing the shame, like being able to just talk openly about the binging. Yeah. Like you're saying, that kind of magical moment in a way where you suddenly feel connected with others and realize Mm. that you're not alone. I guess there's, there's this, Go on. I, was, I was just going to say there's this kind of incredible power of being very matter of fact about it when you've spent your whole life hiding it. So when mm. a guy says, when a guy messages in the group and says, look, like, lads, I've binged, I'm feeling shit about it. And then four other guys in the next hour come in with like, I feel you. And yeah, like, what are you planning on doing about it? And great to have written that out. And it's not kind of all sympathy and like, here, here they're there it's like okay yeah like get it like thank you for writing this like that's important that's a great habit to build up like writing it when you've struggled I think that's the kind of being this matter of fact yeah yeah like facing up to it is really powerful in itself Mm, yeah no it sounds fantastic and is it like for a certain length of time that you engage in the program or is that flexible or how does that work yeah, it's a great question. So we, as you can imagine, work with a clinical psychologist on this to kind of develop the program and develop kind of the course structure. As you will know, and as your audience will know, life doesn't kind of suddenly become flowers and roses after three months. Three months is the kind of our time frame where we say, you know, you will be, you will be in a better place. And that's the kind of setting of expectations. But I've definitely learned for myself that you you really want to kind of increase that distance over time. And so, yeah, we say it's a three-month course and then you graduate, but, you know, we're going to keep making content. We think it will be really beneficial if you keep going and let's try and build more distance between you and the behavior. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it, it's powerful, isn't it? I think to engage with a long game with all of this, because often it's taken us a lot of time to get into these habits and, you know, need a bit of time as well to be able to heal from them as well. So Richie, well, what would you say as well? Like if you had to think about it, like your top two kind of really powerful take-home things that you've gained from CBT, what would you say they would be? I'd say, okay, I'll present the more obvious one first and I'll, I'll present the less obvious one second. The more obvious one, the first would be this systematic breakdown of what was traditionally a behavior that you almost just watched yourself doing. And instead, this kind of appreciation and hope that, ah, like this does make sense. This is why I'm doing it. There is a reason I'm binging. And therefore, if I try and reproduce that in another way, or if I try and dampen the connection between the cue and the the thought, if I change the cognition to not lead to that feeling, et cetera, it's a very systematic approach. And I think Mm. it's a, yeah, it's a very kind of engineering almost mindset. And it makes a lot of 
makes a ton of sense. I think that really probably resonates with me. And I, I could also understand that maybe it wouldn't resonate with everyone. It definitely really, really resonates with me. I think the, the less obvious one, but the really powerful one for me is humility. And it's this idea that, you know, I thought that resilience meant independence. Independence meant being your island. Okay, actually, I was probably wrong about that. And I think I can, I can know why, because I've challenged those thoughts. Okay, resilience is still a good trait, but it doesn't mean I need to reject my support network. Okay, like point proven. Another one would be, okay, body image, you know, like I'm only virtuous or, you know, being thin is virtuous or something like that. Ah, like, why do you think that? Breaking it down. Ah, okay, humble again. So like kind of every time, like, ah, humility, like it comes knocking on my door again. And then it's this appreciation that like, ah, I don't know all the answers and I've got a lot of questioning still to do of my thought processes. And that's a very humbling journey, really. Mm, okay. No, well, thank you so much for sharing those two things. I think, you know, really, really powerful. And it sounds like as well, I think, just hearing you reflecting and talking about your journey as you're sort of recovering, you know, from binge eating and the after effects of it. It's been a kind of massive journey in personal development, hasn't it? And, you know, I guess it sounds like as well, like, probably some really wonderful and amazing things have come out of it, although it has been also very challenging along the way. Yeah, hundred percent. I think there's a lot of, there's a ton of learning I am doing for my own working style based on this. You know, why do I procrastinate? Is some of my procrastination a form of binge eating in the sense of that it's the same kind of underlying drivers and how much this has taught me about my own kind of wider interactions, way different, way away from the actual binge eating behavior itself is just like really fascinating so yeah it's it's still very much an ongoing process of these kind of wider understanding of what's going on Mm, sure yeah no well fascinating and you know I mean I guess as well you know just wonderful that you're going to be able to like you're taking that into your business now and having that awareness and obviously through fella you're going to be able to support so many other you know young men as well to be able to well men of all ages I guess you know to be able to do the same which is really, really encouraging. Definitely. So, yeah, so Richie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for talking about your experiences so openly and also for sharing about Fella and all the great work you're doing there. So can I just ask you as well, where can people find information about Fella if they want to hear more about it? Find out more Great about question. It. So we're at joinfella.com on our website. And if you type in Fella binge eating it will come up and fella is f-e-l-l-a so like hello fella kind of thing i'm also called richie cartwright and if you search in on say instagram or linkedin i'll come up on those on twitter as well and so i share a lot of content both for myself for my own story and journey but also kind of insights that i'm getting which are fantastic from the guys itself so yeah join fella.com fella binge eating on google and richie cartwright on instagram and linkedin Okay, lovely. Well, I should put all that information in the show notes. Great. So thank you so much, Richie. And great to speak with you. Thank you very much, Harriet. It's great to speak. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of the contact information for Fella in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you're not following me already, do check me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And if you're looking for more support in overcoming disordered eating, do go to 
theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk and you can find information about my online courses, Steps to Intuitive Eating and How to Stop Binge Eating in the Pandemic. Thank you so much and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm -hmm.